This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my experience from working as a nurse for 44 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, here to ask questions you didn't know you had. We are both here because we believe that the more you know, the better prepared you will be to make difficult decisions before a crisis hits. So please relax, get yourself something buttery and sinful to snack and sip on, and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me as we talk about using humor to cope with death. In the first half, we have a cultural trip to Japan, served with an icy cold bottle of Sapporo beer and our recipe of the week. In the second half, we explore the humor and death and how they match up. I know you probably don't think they do, but they can. And in our third half, Charlie shares an amusing obituary. So Charles, how are you? Well, um, not too bad. Um, you know, it's, it's the, you know, New York City is in its uh, holiday mood, which means you can't go anywhere near Rockefeller Center because oh, so many people are there to look at that tree, which of course, <laughs> which of course is lovely. It's, it's so nice to have a quarter of a million visitors. Um, but, you know, the ice skating rink is back now and, you know, people do go to the tree. I mean, it, it is it is so crowded. Uh, it's, it's by appointment because they only allow a certain number of people uh, around the area to get to get near the tree. But uh, yeah, New York is really. Cr- yeah, I know it's nuts. Um, yeah. When did that start? You know what? Um, maybe a year before the pandemic. Huh. Maybe I missed that m- one. Yeah, maybe two years. There were just so many people. Yeah, so I mean, everywhere from uh, Rockefeller Center, let's say approximately Fifth Avenue to Seventh, Eighth. Yeah, like approaching Eighth Avenue. Um, yeah, it is just a wee bit more crowded than usual. Apart from huh. that, great. Well, I love New York City in the wintertime. It is nice, so, yeah. It is nice. But we're not going to stay in, in New York City. We're going we're to not? Japan, right? Ooh. No. I thought you were taking me to Japan today. Um, yeah. Let's motor west. you're not gonna sing uh i was about to and i thought yeah better not you disappoint me well okay because i don't remember the rest of the lyrics that's why um (laughs) but yes and thanks to gastro obscura we are traveling this week to japan to explore the ritual of obon a Japanese summer festival where ancestral spirits are welcomed back home for a three-day family reunion in the world of the living. During Obon, they're honored with offerings of favorite foods, bonfires, and lively dances before being led back to the land of the dead on a river of floating lanterns. Cleaning the grave... That sounds so nice, doesn't it? I know, just just that image of uh, floating lanterns. Yeah. I love it. Yes. So with this, clearing the grave is the first ritual of Obon, 
followed by food preparation. While Obon is celebrated all over Japan, the food varies from family to family and region to region. In Shokuko, people press stripes of sushi ingredients into a box, not unlike a layer cake. Called Hekuko, it's commonly served at summer family gatherings. Badara, stewed and dried codfish, is a go-to in Kyushu, since dried foods keep better in the heat. Buddhist supply shops offer customized sets of obon altar decorations, such as bamboo fronds or dried Chinese lantern plants, depending on local traditions. In Sana Prefecture, cucumbers and eggplants are skewered with four bamboo legs and tails made out of corn silk. These typical summer vegetables become shoreiva, or spirit horses. The cucumber horse is long and sleek, symbolizing ancestors' swift journeys home to their families. The eggplant cow, plump and sturdy, embodies ancestors' leisurely return trip, a load of souvenirs with them in tow. While this long-standing tradition is practiced in many parts of Japan, younger generations have been riffing on it in new ways, carving their summer vegetables into elaborate creations and posting them online. For some people, shoreova represents a special way to pay tribute to their loved ones. Japanese etiquette blogs note that the traditional method of disposal for obon offerings is returning them to the earth or releasing them into a river. A more modern option calls for sprinkling the offerings with purifying salt, wrapping them in white paper, and throwing them out with the trash. Victoria Yoshimura, a Buddhist priest at Shonenji Temple in Takashio, says that it's a misconception that obon food offerings should be eaten by the living, though it's rude to waste food in Buddhism, and this is blessed food, as it has been offered to the Hokisama, who are deceased ancestors who themselves have become Buddhas. Keeping up with the steamy Japanese summer weather, however, when food spoils quickly is a challenge. During the three days of Obon, the population of rural towns will swell and the local family members feed both living and dead house guests. But rather than cooking special offerings for the departed, the ancestors want to eat foods they usually ate in life, with one caveat. The ancestors are vegetarian. Both Shinto and Buddhism occur simultaneously in Japan. Most rituals associated with end-of-life ceremonies, like Obon, are Buddhist, and any ritual food related to a Buddhist ceremony is going to be Shinrari, meaning without flesh. Rukuka, neon-hued sweets made from sugar and rice pressed into the shape of peaches, Bunches of grapes, bananas, and lotus flowers are the icing on the obun altar. Another must for sweet tooth spirits is dango, chewy balls of mochi. Dango is our recipe of the week, so be sure to try these sweet dumplings a try. On the last night of obon, the families gather with their neighbors at the river that cuts through the center of town. With them is a small boat that is filled with gifts for the ancestors. Flowers, fruit, a bottle of sage, and more dango. They say goodbye in our hearts as they lower their boats and glowing paper lanterns into the water and watch them bob downstream. 
Then fireworks explode overhead and everyone heads back to the town's summer festival for beer and an obon folk dance called Monodori. Japanese people feel happy during Obon because they get to meet their loved ones again. Obon is about gratitude for those who came before. Thanks to them, we can say we are alive. Without them, we don't exist. How about that? That was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and again, just that, with everything said, I, what you had pointed out before, I just still have that image in my head about the lanterns. This, you know, floating, yeah. you know, uh, floating peacefully on the water. So with that pleasant image in our heads, please go to our webpage for the recipe and additional resources for this program. We hope you will be best friends with us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And remember to rate and review this podcast. We have a link in our show notes that makes rating our podcast easy. And that would be so helpful to us. As a licensed nonprofit organization, we're dependent on your kindness and always appreciate your tax-deductible donations. If you find this podcast to be of help to you, please go to our webpage to donate so that we can continue to provide quality shows about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement at www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, guys. Dot org. Marianne? Thanks, Charlie. Philosopher Ernest Becker argues in his book, The Denial of Death, that the fear of death is a motivation for a wide range of human behaviors, including behaviors related to our attempts to be remembered after we die. In the West, we tend to treat death with a very somber attitude. Taking death too lightly is seen as rude, and our rituals reflect this. We know death is inevitable, yet most of us have difficulty lightening up about it. Alan Klein writes about humor and death by pointing out that humor provides relief for our anxieties about death, help us cope with the death of others, and eases the stress that surrounds grief. When we joke about death, we take the mystery out of it and begin to get the upper hand on our fears. As George Mikes has pointed out, laughing at death gives us a triple pleasure— the pleasure of the joke itself, the malicious joy of laughing at death's expense, and the pleasure of taming death and fraternizing with him. By joking about our death, we can make it, or anything that oppresses us for that matter, less frightening. Our culture emphasizes the loss of everything when we die and the difference between life and death. In many other cultures, life and death are not classified as opposing forces, but simply as two aspects of existence. Because of this point, they've been able to view death in a lighter manner. An example of not viewing death as tragic can be seen in the cremation ceremonies of the Balinese people. Death for the Balinese is not the end, but is seen as the beginning for the soul. Therefore, when the body dies and releases the spirit, it's time for a great celebration. The procession which precedes the actual burning of the body, for example, has been described as a small Rose Bowl parade with an Irish wake thrown in for spice. When someone is seriously ill, we frequently allow their illness to crowd out everything else. We tend for, to forget that they are more than their disease. Perhaps unknowingly, we separate ourselves from them. We become the well, and they become the sick. A few laughs between the terminally ill and others brings those involved to equal territory. It's as, it's as if I'm saying 
If we can laugh together, then I'm no different than you. Shared laughter between the patient and someone else emphasizes that you're not dead yet. We still have something in common. One of the places to look for human in a situation where someone is dying is in the ambiguities that surround this process. There's often an avalanche of mixed emotions here, which can create a fertile ground for comic moments. For example, a woman who was very near death refused to eat any more food. She said she wanted to die. The following day, she announced her intention to die again, and again the day passed without her death. This went on for several days. Then one day, she rose from her bed and joined the rest of her family at the breakfast table. The amazed family members wanted to know how come she was joining them for breakfast after so many days of not eating. The frail elderly lady turned and answered, So who wants to die on an empty stomach? For the survivor, human can be a source of strength. For the professional caregiver who encounters numerous deaths, human can be a socially acceptable way of releasing frustration and helplessness. For the patient, humor can be a way of coping with failing bodily functions, unfamiliar medical procedures, and confused emotions. For all concerned, humor can be a way of communicating about a taboo subject. We can continue to see humor as a foreign element in dealing with death and dying, or we can start to take advantage of humor's important coping, bonding, stress-relieving, and communication qualities. While treating death, funerals and obituaries as somber, serious occasions both allows us to grieve and enables us to keep death at arm's length. Treating it as something a little less depressing and mystical can be refreshing. While the death of a loved one is often tragic, we all grieve in different ways. And there's no reason why we can't also laugh. Do you agree with that, Charlie? I laughed. I cried. Uh, yes, very much. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Remember earlier earlier this year. You um, are so evil. <laughs> well, well, I, you know, and it's and it's funny to hear you say that because as you were as you were just saying about you know humor is, um, I think for some is a coping mechanism, but others you know people laugh, and it's it's just appropriate for that person. I mean, some you and I have both seen uh, you know people who you know have been sick uh, in some cases dying. You know, start to make jokes or or start to hum a song and in in an earlier episode um we we discussed that just how you know it's your party and you'll die as you want to and yeah i mean people like to laugh people like music and to be able to surround yourself with that uh just to make it easier on yourself i mean it may upset the people around you but you know, again, again, as, as I said at that time, it's your party and you will die as you want to. So go ahead. Laugh. Make jokes if you want to. Sing a song. Sing out loud. Sing along. Yes. <laughs> Which children's... Oh, that was... What song was that? What's that? That you just... Those lines. Um, I'm thinking of like the Coke commercial. Wasn't it? Um, no, I wasn't quoting anything. It's just, I, no, I, I know, those I know. Those are know. lines from a song and I can't think of what it is. Really? Oh, I mean, yeah. I what mean, do, do you mean, do you mean the old, um, song, you know, like to teach the world to sing that? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's it. 
Thank you. I always remember. Was, was, I always was, remember the close, and I think it was a closing scene of uh, of the series Mad Men, where uh, you know Draper just goes away, gets away from the big city, just really needs to leave all of that um, advertising, you know, Mad Men uh, behavior and thinking behind him. He's meditating on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and in that deep meditation. He's feeling peaceful and happy. And suddenly what comes to his mind is that song. <laughs> I want to teach the world to sing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's back in action. Yeah. So people write all kinds of different obituaries, and most of them are very serious, but not all of them. And we found one that, is real and and quite amusing. So, Charlie, are you going to read it for us? As Marianne was saying, funny obituaries can be seen as both an attempt to immortalize a deceased loved one and as a way to reduce the anxiety felt about death. After all, how can we fear something we're laughing at? For example, in Wilmington, Delaware, Rick Stein, 71, was reported missing and presumed dead on September 27, 2018, when investigators say the single-engine plane he was piloting, the Northrop, suddenly lost communication with air traffic control and disappeared over the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Rehoboth Beach. Philadelphia police confirmed Stein had been a patient at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital where he was being treated for a rare form of cancer. Hospital spokesman, Walter Heisenberg says doctors from Stein's surgical team went to visit him on rounds when they discovered his room was empty. Security footage shows Stein leaving the building at approximately 3.30 Thursday afternoon, but then the video feed mysteriously cuts off. Authorities say they believe Stein took an Uber to the Philadelphia airport, where they assume he somehow gained access to the aircraft. The sea was angry that day, said NTSB lead investigator Greg Fields in a press conference. We have no idea where Mr. Stein may be, but any hope for a rescue is unlikely. Stein's location isn't the only mystery. It seems no one in his life knew his exact occupation. His daughter, Alex Walsh of Wilmington, appeared shocked by the news. My dad couldn't even fly a plane. He owned restaurants in Boulder, Colorado, and knew every answer on Jeopardy. He did the New York Times crossword in pen. I talked to him that day, and he told me he was going out to get some grappa. All he ever wanted was a glass of grappa. Stein's brother, Jim, echoed similar confusion. Rick and I owned Stuart Kingston Galleries together. He was a jeweler and oriental rug dealer, not a pilot. Meanwhile, Miss Lettington of Charlottesville claimed her brother was a cartoonist and freelance television critic for The New Yorker. David Walsh, Stein's son-in-law, said he was certain Stein was a political satirist for the Huffington Post, while grandsons Drake and Sam say they believe Stein wrote an internet sports column for ESPN covering Duke basketball, FC Barcelona soccer, the Denver Broncos, and the Tour de France. Stein's granddaughter, Evangeline, claims he was a YouTube sensation who had just signed a seven-figure deal with Netflix. When told of his uncle's disappearance, Edward Stein 
said he was baffled since he believed Stein worked as a trail guide in Rocky Mountain National Park. He took me on a hike up the Lily Peak Trail back in the 90s. He knew every berry, bush, and tree on that trail. Nephew James Stein of Los Angeles claimed his uncle was an A&R consultant for Bad Boy Records and ran a chain of legal recreational marijuana dispensaries in Colorado called Casa Bluta. Niece Courtney Stein, a former Hollywood agent, said her uncle had worked as a contributing writer for Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm and was currently consulting on a new series with Larry David. People who knew Stein have reported his occupation as everything from gourmet chef and sommelier to botanist, electrician, mechanic, and even spy novelist. People say the volume of contradictory information will make it nearly impossible to pinpoint Stein's exact location. In fact, the only person who might be able to answer the question, who is the real Rick Stein, is his wife and constant companion for the past 14 years, Susan Stein. Detectives say they were unable to interview Mrs. Stein. However, neighbors say they witnessed her leaving the home the couple shared, wearing dark sunglasses and a fedora, loading multiple suitcases into her car. FAA records show she purchased a pair of one-way tickets to Rome, which was Mr. Stein's favorite city. An anonymous source with the airline reports the name used to book the other tickets was Juan Morfor the Road which, according to the FBI, was an alias Stein used for many years. That is one story. Another story is that Rick never left the hospital and died peacefully with his wife and his daughter, holding tightly to his hands. So, Mary, Isn't that an incredible obituary? And it's true. Yes, it's not, it's not like it's something made up. That was the obituary. Yes. Yeah. That's wild. And I think... It would be so great to have somebody very creatively write your obituary. If you're if you're not a good writer, then find somebody who's who's funny and have them write it for you. Yes. In fact, I just saw a movie with <clears throat> God. Who was in it? Shirley MacLaine and uh-huh. I forget who else. Where Shirley MacLaine's is this hard ass businesswoman? Yeah. And she's working with this girl to write her obituary. And, like, what makes a good obituary? And Shirley MacLaine's character has none of the, <laughs> none of the aspects of, of a good family, something interesting, um, something altruistic that should go into an obituary. So while she's still alive, she decides that she's going to create all those things so they can be included in her obituary. Was that the one uh, who she played a, a, a piano teacher? She's an older woman, played, she's a piano teacher? No, she ended up, her interesting thing was she went to a local um, uh, radio station uh-huh. and became a disc jockey. Oh, okay. Have you not seen it? Oh, I don't even know the name of it. You know how bad I am with that. No, it doesn't sound familiar. You should well if you look if you look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know from that description you can you can find the title of it. Yeah. But it was one of those I was stripping the doors and that came on. So you can you can hire people to write a good obituary. That's true. You can yes. Yeah. Or just after a couple of drinks, uh, come up with one of your own. Right. So while you're doing that. 
Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies. And thank you for listening. Like the lives of our days, so is an hour of sand. I'm not sure what that means. <clears throat> this is Charlie Navarrete. And speaking of writers, from Dorothy Parker, writer of A Star is Born, Resume. Razors pain you, rivers are damp, acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Drugs aren't lawful, nooses give. Gas smells awful, you might as well live. Thank you, Dorothy. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, it's okay to laugh through your tears, and every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.